Our reading today is from Exodus 25, verses 8 through 22. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make it an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside, and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Good morning. It is a joy to be with you, a privilege to be with you, Ogletown Baptist. Thank you for having me here today. We at Redeemer Fellowship, just a few miles away, are extremely grateful to God for our partnership in the gospel with all of you. Personally, I am very grateful for uh, your leaders. I was good friends with Curtis. Sad to see him go. I'm a big fan of your upcoming senior pastor. I was emailing with Deepak last week, uh, getting to know him a little bit. Uh, But I am particularly thankful for your current leaders. Uh, They have, it seems to me, I know I am looking from the cheap seats. I haven't had a front row like all of you have. But it seems to me that they have done a tremendous job of leading you through this year of transition. Uh, God has been kind to you through their shepherding care. And I thank God for them. And I hope and pray that we are able to partner together here in Newark for many, many years to come. Exodus 25, at Redeemer Fellowship, we have been working our way systematically through the book of Exodus. It has been a wonderful study together, and today, as we just heard read so well, we are studying God's instruction for the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. This is the only piece of furniture to be placed in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And friends, I just need to say that I have been so prayerful and deeply dependent in my preparation when I was preaching this to my church family and even to you this morning. And that is because we are walking on holy ground here in Exodus chapter 25. And so may God bless the preaching of his holy and sacred and authoritative word to our souls this morning. God 
wants to dwell with his people. He, he wants to live with them. He, he wants to be a source of strength. He wants to be an orientation of truth. He wants to be an anchor for their souls. And how he plans to do that is by dwelling at the very center of who they are. He is giving instruction for this tabernacle to be built, which is just a 15 by 40 foot cloth tent, and it is to be built and then erected at the very center of the Israelite camp. All of Israel and their different tribes would literally live around this tent with God's holy and powerful presence literally at the center of their lives. Daily existence would happen with this tent within eyesight. Meals would be eaten, relationships would grow, conflicts would be dealt with, festivals would be celebrated, wars would be fought, life would be lived with God's presence physically present at the center of their camp. And this is all by God's good design. As we study the tabernacle together, we should be reminded in a very clear and wonderful way that God does not desire to occupy a periphery part of your life. God does not desire to live on the edge of you and your family's life. He is not interested in being an add-on to your schedule with soccer and ballet and the Eagles. He is not interested in sharing prime real estate with your career or your physical fitness or your family memories. No. He desires and he indeed demands the most central place in our lives. He will not share prime real estate with anyone or anything. And friends, that's not because he's like your boss at work who wants the bigger corner office because he needs it to feel good about himself. No, this is because God knows that he is true north for his people. He is the great I am according to chapter 3. He is the self-existent one. Friend, you will experience the most peace and the most strength and the most joy, not when God is set to the side or is an afterthought or is a secondary or tertiary solution, only after you've gone to your therapist or taken your medicine or read the next self-help book. No, your best life now comes from removing yourself from the center of your life and allowing God's holy presence in all of his transcendent glory and majesty to occupy that place alone. This is the message of the tabernacle. And it all begins with God's instruction about the Ark of the Covenant. This is the first and the most important piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle structure. It will be spoken of throughout God's word as the throne of God. It will occupy the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And friends, to consider it together should make us tremble a little bit. The Holy of Holies, it would have been a very quiet place, a very reverential place, even a dangerous place. We must not approach it tritely. We must consider it with reverence and awe and respect. And we must consider it with joy and thankfulness because through it, God shows us abundant mercy. The main idea for our sermon this morning is simply this. The Ark of the Covenant perfectly pictures God's holiness and mercy for sinful people. 
we have four points. Number one, the design of the ark, that's verses 10 to 11. Number two, the content of the ark, that's going to be verses 16 and 21. Number three, the holiness of the ark, that's 12 to 15. And then point number four, the mercy of the ark, which is verses 17 to 22. Let's begin with the first point. Point number one is the design of the ark. So as God begins his instruction to Moses on how to design the tabernacle, he does not begin with the outside courtyard or even the structure himself. No, he begins with the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Well, because this Ark of the Covenant is the centerpiece. Verse 22 says that it is upon this Ark of the Covenant that God is going to meet with his people. The the entire tabernacle was to be seen as God's dwelling place, but he begins his design of the tabernacle from the inside out. He starts with the content of the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the most restricted place. God begins with the Ark of the Covenant. But now what is it? What is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, let's look at verses 10 to 11. It says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood, Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So these are the measurements and the design of the ark. But what is it? It's basically a wooden box. A cubit is about 18 inches long. So according to verse 10, this is a wooden box that is about 3.75 feet long, 2.25 feet wide, and about 2.25 feet high. It's a medium-sized wooden chest. But then it says in verse 11 that they are to overlay it with gold. So it's a wooden box, but it's clearly no ordinary wooden box. It is overlaid with gold. And as you know, gold speaks of value and of weight. It speaks of royalty and glory and beauty. It was to be overlaid, it says, with pure gold. Not just any gold, but gold with all of its impurities, all of its dross, all of its imperfections fully removed. Why? Because there must not be any impurities or imperfections in the presence of the holy God. The Ark of the Covenant, it's a big deal. It will be spoken of throughout Scripture as the throne of God. But the Ark of the Covenant is a medium-sized wooden box. It's an impressive box. It's it's valuable. It's beautiful. But but fundamentally, the, the first piece of furniture in the tabernacle, the most important piece of furniture, is a chest of wood. Friends, think about this with me. Yes, the the detail is important, the beauty and the craftsmanship that we see here and then throughout the rest of the tabernacle. Yes, every detail is important. All of it is theologically and gospel-rich to us today. But when it comes down to it, we're talking about a wooden box and a tent of cloth. Think about the humility of God. Think about his loving condescension towards his people. This is the God of the universe who is more valuable than all of the gold in the world put together. He's the God who created the gold. He is allowing his presence to be represented by a little wooden box with a little gold overlaying it. Think about that. Think about the humility here. You know, I think with our human tendency, we we, we tend to look at this and say, God, why don't you just stay on Mount Sinai? Like, you're big enough, you can just move that around with the people of Israel. Stay on Mount Sinai, let that be your dwelling place. But no, friend, he creates a tabernacle, and even more so, a small wooden box, 
Brothers and sisters, think about the loving condescension of our God. Actually, think about the the demonstration of, of true power and true leadership that this is. Right? We, we like to think of power and position as, as being with those who have control and, and influence and who can make other people serve them however they want. The, those with power in our culture, in a worldly sense, they demand the bigger office and the higher salary. But that is not true godly power or leadership. True power is power that lovingly condescends to care for those around you. And that's what we see in God himself. The, the tabernacle is beautiful. It's actually magnificent. It will reflect God's beauty in many ways. But we should not move quickly beyond the fact that this God lovingly, eagerly seeks to dwell with his people. He condescends towards them. And friends, not just with the Ark of the Covenant, but even more so through his son, Jesus. There was a day coming when this wooden box, which would hold God's presence throughout the Old Testament, there was a day coming when it would be replaced with another wooden box, a wooden manger in which it would hold the Son of God in flesh, the Son of God lovingly condescending in the ultimate way, being born as a baby to live with us and to ultimately save us from our sins. Listen, the Ark of the Covenant which points to the wooden manger and ultimately even to the wooden cross where God condescends towards his people in the ultimate way, even to the point of death. This is the design of the ark. It brings us to our second point. Point number two, the content of the ark. So more than just the design, we must also consider the content of this ark of the covenant. Look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16 says, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And it says it again in verse 21. The ark of the covenant is called the ark of the covenant because it will now hold the covenantal documents, the, the testimony, the 10 commandments. It, those things are now to be forever held within this ark. Later in scripture, we find out about a few other things that would be placed within it, but they're not spoken of in this text. And so think about this with me. The ark will be described multiple times as the throne of God. And if that's true, then his presence is going to rest upon. He will, in a sense, sit upon his covenantal word, his testimony, his covenantal promises. This is amazing. This is amazing. For all of the centuries that the Ark of the Covenant would be absolutely central to God's or to Israel's identity, God's testimony was to always be, in a sense, before God. His covenantal words, his covenantal promises were to be in his constant view. He is, in a sense, sitting upon them. And so, Ogletown, listen, we see here how immensely and gloriously important God's word is for our souls. The grass withers, the flower fades, our lives fade away, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Our God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and he wants you and I to believe that so much, that, that he places his covenant documents at his very feet. He places his words of promise in this box so that we will clearly see that he is forever committed to keep his word. His word is in the holy of holies with him. Think about that. In many ways, his word is equal to his presence. 
Christian, listen, if tomorrow morning you want to be ushered into the presence of God, if Friday after a busy Thanksgiving you're tired and worn out and beaten down and you need the refreshments of God's promise, what do you need to do? Open up the Word. Open up your Bibles and read. It's so significant. And Olga Town, let me, let me encourage and honor you in this. I know that you are a church that loves this book. I know that it was true of Curtis. I know it's true of Deepak. I know that it is true of you. I love coffee and I go to Starbucks on the regular. And since moving down to Delaware six years ago, there have probably been a dozen times when I've walked into different Starbucks and I've seen people earnestly studying their Bible and discussing it together. And being a, a, a pastor and a bold guy, I go up to them and I introduce myself. And there's probably been a dozen times when I found out that those people are members of this church. Thank you for loving God's word. Thank you for fellowshipping around God's word. May we never leave it behind. May it be central to who you are today and for years to come. As as God himself keeps it at his feet, in his presence, may we also keep it in view at all times as well. May we, by God's grace, love, respect, honor, and obey this book. Amen? Point number three, the holiness of the ark. There there is so much comfort and there is so much hope in the fact that God's covenantal word is in the ark of the covenant and that his presence is going to be above it. It is a comfort, but if we stop and think about it even a little more, we will quickly realize that this is also very troubling. Because as committed as God is to his word, as much as he will never break even a single word of his covenant with us, you and I cannot say the same, can we? No, as enthusiastic as the Israelites are back in chapter 24 to say all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's what they said. As enthusiastic as they are to say that we know from their history and we certainly know from our own history that we cannot be true to God's covenant word. Our sinfulness condemns us, doesn't it? Paul says in Romans chapter 2, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. That's what the Israelites did. They they boasted in the law. They were so honored, as they should have been, to be God's chosen people. But as much as they boasted in the law, they broke the law. And it's not just the Israelites, is it? It's us as well. Romans chapter 3, Paul says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. As much as God is a covenant-keeping God, oh church, you and I, we are covenant-breaking people. And so think about this with me. This, this is troubling In the very presence of God, in the holy of holies, there is a covenant reminder of God's faithfulness and a condemning reminder of our covenant unfaithfulness. And so this is why the Ark of the Covenant must be placed in the holy of holies with a thick curtain separating it from everything else because God's holy presence and his law and testimony, which is a constant reminder of our unfaithfulness, 
It's in that place. That's why the ark must be separate. And this is why in verses 12 to 15, God tells Moses that the ark is to have these golden rings attached to it. And then they are to make two poles and overlay them with gold. And those poles are supposed to go through the rings on the ark. Why? To carry it. To carry the ark. When the Israelites traveled from place to place, they they would need to move the ark. But they cannot touch it. They must not touch it. Because they are not holy. No, they are sinful. Later we will see that anyone that touches the ark will die. Anyone who goes into the holy of holies in a careless way, they will die. Because God is in that place. His holiness resides there. Friends, this is the holiness of the ark. Listen, God's presence is glorious. The psalmist says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. But that is not true for sinners who are separated from his presence by their sin. Christian, listen, non-Christian, if you're not a Christian here today, listen, your sin is a big problem. It's a really big problem. It separates you from God. I know we don't like to think this way about ourselves, but it's true. We are sinful and rebellious, and we deserve the judgment of God. To even touch his holiness in our sinful state is to be consumed by his wrath. There's actually a very powerful illustration of this later in God's word in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when, when King David and the Israelite people are bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. It says that they place the Ark on a cart and the cart is being pulled along by oxen and then it says that the oxen stumble along the way and that the Ark becomes imbalanced and the Ark begins to fall. And then it says that a man named Uzzah It says he reached out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant. And what happens? God strikes him dead right then and there. It says that God struck him down because of his error. But why? It seems like he's doing a good thing. He's trying to keep the Ark out of the mud. That seems like a godly thing to do. What was his error? His error was presuming that before the holy presence of God, he as a rebellious sinner was more holy and more pure than the mud on the ground. But he wasn't. The mud had never sinned or rebelled against God. The mud had never rebelled against God's sovereignty or broken his covenant. The mud was doing exactly what God created it to do. But Uzzah, in like you and me, was a sinful man. And so for him to presume that his sinful hand touching God's presence was better than the mud, oh, that was to commit a grievous error. Friend, we don't like to consider our sin in this way, but we must. God's word does, and so we must as well. It's bad news. It's really, really, really bad news. But we must consider it in order to get to the good news. You know, I was preparing this sermon a few weeks ago for Redeemer Fellowship, and I was having this incredible moment in my home, in my study. Uh, I was studying this, considering the holiness of God, the perfections of God, the the glory of God, and the morning sun was shining through the window. I had a hot, hot cup of coffee. I had just spent time on my face in prayer before the Lord. It, It felt like a holy moment. And then I got called out by my kids to deal with a plumbing issue in the house. 
And it was not a pleasant plumbing issue. It was a most unpleasant plumbing issue, the type that you want to take a shower afterwards. But listen, in that moment, I had the thought, this is very much what it is, according to God's word, for us to enter into his presence in our sinful state. Friends, God's word's clear. Isaiah chapter 64, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Another translation says that they are like menstrual cloth. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that even his best deeds are rubbish. That word rubbish can be translated as as dung or as excrement. This is why God's presence is cut off from us in the Holy of Holies. This is why he has them create poles in order to carry the ark. Even our best deeds are tainted by sin and we need to be forgiven before the incredible holiness, the incredible purity and the many perfections of our holy God. But is that separation the end of the story? No, it is not. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, does our faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And then he answers his own question. He says, by no means. By no means. And that brings us to our fourth point, which is the mercy. The mercy of the ark. Verses 12 to 16, they speak about the holiness of the ark. And listen, I wonder, I wonder if that barrier of God's holiness because of your sin, I, I wonder if it makes you feel like God doesn't really, really want to be with you. Does it make you feel like God is just acquiescing towards the Israelites and towards you in your sin? Almost like he is begrudgingly obliging them, but that he doesn't really want to dwell with them. That, that's almost what verses 12 to 16 can make us feel, isn't it? But praise God for what comes next. Verse 17, it says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And then it gives the design of the mercy seat. It is to be pure gold. It is to fit perfectly over the box. Verses 18 to 20, they talk about the cherubim on the cover of it. It says that they are to design two cherubim because here in God's word and elsewhere, the cherubim are spoken of as the angelic beings who are there to guard the way into God's holy presence. So there are two of them on the mercy seat. They are facing each other. Their wings are extended in front of them, creating a a focal point for God's presence. And then verse 22 says, from above the mercy seat, from between the cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you. So when all is said and done, this is what the Ark of the Covenant probably looked like. The closest picture we probably have to it. I think it's a a decent drawing. But friends, it says that God would meet with them and speak to them from above the mercy seat. This is amazing. 
in all of this, we see God's intentionality, but also his eagerness to dwell with his people. He's not just ignoring the problem of sin. He, he can't just ignore the problem of sin. He can't just act as if it is not a big deal. No, sin inevitably separates us from God. But the presence of that problem does not mean that God does not have a glorious solution to the problem. It does not mean that God has not from before the foundation of the world, from before the beginning of time, had a perfect plan of redemption to restore all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. And church, we see, we see that eternal and perfect and loving plan of grace and mercy even in the Ark of the Covenant, which would occupy the most holy place. You know, when we are studying God's word, and specifically the Old Testament, isn't it true that it can feel cumbersome at times? All of the details, it can feel complicated and difficult to understand. A few months ago, I, I was meeting with someone for breakfast over at the Perkins Diner on Kirkwood Highway, and at that point, this person was not a Christian, and they were not a member of our church since then, by God's grace, they have put their faith in Jesus, they've been baptized, and they are members of our church. But I, I remember sitting with them there, and I said, hey, you, you've been a part of the church for a little while, you've attended on Sundays, you've hung out with people, but what do you think about the gospel? What do you think about God's word, and, and do you believe it? And he said, Joel, I don't think I really know the gospel. What is it? Can you tell me it? Sure. <laughs> yes, I think I can do that for you. And in that moment, I, I just felt led to lay out the simple message of the gospel to him with a physical illustration. And so I pushed my pancakes away and I said, all right, man, here, here it is. The gospel is that there is a God, and that God is good and holy and loving and just. And I took the white salt shaker, and I put it on this side of the table to represent God. And I said, but there is a problem, because we, you and I and everybody else, are sinful people. We have rebelled against God. And I put the dark syrup on the other side of the table to represent us. And I said, dude, it's, it's a big problem. God in his holiness is, is actively coming against us in our sin because God in his justice, he must punish sin. There's such a thing called wrath. There's such a thing called hell and eternal judgment for those who have rebelled against God. The, the salt is coming against the syrup, I said. But then I said, God has created a solution to this problem. He has sent his son Jesus to come in between God's wrath and sinful humanity. And I, I took the ketchup and I put it in between. And I said he sent the, his son to earth so that through his death and his shed blood, I did not squirt the ketchup all over the place, don't worry. But I said through that work, all of his wrath has been absorbed in Christ so that not a drop of it remains for anyone over here who looks and says, this is a problem, but that is the solution. Anyone who looks there and says, Jesus was sent by God to die in my place and I put my faith in him and I invite him to be Lord and King over my life, they will be saved. And my friend sat there and he said, Joel, are you serious? It is that simple? And I have to confess to you this morning, I, I wondered if I had oversimplified it. Maybe I should have used bigger words. Justification, sanctification, expiation, glorification. 
Is it that simple? Ogletown Baptist, it is that simple. The answer is yes. And we can see how simple it is even by looking at the seemingly more complicated parts of God's word. The Ark of the Covenant is a perfect and simple picture of exactly what I said to my friends at that table in Perkins. Think about it with me. You have God's holy presence which it says is above the mercy seat. That's the salt shaker. And then you have the content of the ark, which is the law, the testimony, which condemns every one of us. It reminds us of our inability to come near to God. That's the syrup. There must be a separation between the two. God's judgment is coming against our sin. We have a a big problem. But then there is the mercy seat. The cover which comes in between. And not just the mercy seat itself, but what will happen upon that mercy seat for centuries to come. Hebrews chapter 9 says that no one, no one was allowed into the Holy of Holies. No one was allowed except for the high priest. And he could come into that holy place only once a year on the day of atonement. And it says only the high priest goes in and he but once a year and not without taking blood. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies, and he would take the blood of bulls and goats with him. And what would he do with that blood? Leviticus chapter 16 says that he would come in carefully. He would come in prayerfully. He would come in Humbly, having confessed his sins and the sins of the people, having purified his body and put on clean garments, and he would come in, it says, and he would sprinkle that blood on that mercy seat cover. Think about it. The Ark of the Covenant is a profoundly simple depiction of the gospel, God's justice and holiness above, our sinfulness and condemnation below, and mercy made possible through blood in between. Friends, God is not only acquiescing towards us, he's not begrudgingly dwelling with us. It has always been his intentional plan to dwell with us. It has always been his plan in the fullness of time to send his son to be the sacrificial lamb, to die in our place, to absorb all of the wrath of God so that we might be forgiven and so that our relationship with him might be restored. The Ark of the Covenant perfectly pictures God's holiness and mercy towards sinful people. We don't need to overcomplicate it. The Old Testament doesn't overcomplicate it. God has given us pictures of this everywhere in his word. The gospel is simple. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is mercy. Do you know what mercy is? We talk a lot about grace in the church. Grace is when you are given something that you do not deserve. And so our salvation is by grace alone because we don't deserve it. It is a free gift of God to those who believe in Christ. But the grace of the gospel comes through the mercy of the gospel. Mercy is when you do not receive something that you do deserve. And what do we all deserve? God's judgment. 
But he has through his mercy, through his atoning grace. In many translations, the mercy seat is called the atonement cover because it is through shed blood that atonement is made. Through it, we are spared from that which was rightly coming against us. This is mercy, friends. This is the gospel. It's not complicated. Jesus, our great high priest, entered into the holy of holies, the most holy place, heaven itself. And in that place, he shed his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood so that anyone, anyone who believes in him as the one mediator between God and man will be saved. Friends, think about how central this is for all of God's people. The Ark of the Covenant would go everywhere with the people of Israel. It was at the very center of their camp and at the very center of their lives. It did not occupy a periphery place in their existence. Why? Because it's a picture of the gospel and how the gospel should be centered in our lives as well. The Ark of the Covenant points forward to Jesus. But not just to Jesus and his grace towards us. It reminds us that he, Jesus, is a holy, holy, holy God. It gives weight and substance to our joy in him. We must sing and dance before his presence, even as David did, because there is fullness of joy there. But we must also have moments when we consider how serious, how weighty and somber, how truly glorious his mercy is because of his holiness. Brothers and sisters, I think one of the greatest needs in the church today and in our Christian lives is that we would learn to not celebrate his grace tritely, but with a serious respect for his holiness. We must humbly acknowledge how different from us he is, how holy, how majestic he is, how weighty he is. We will enjoy his grace and his mercy more Our souls will be happier. We will have more joy when we keep his holiness and the weight of his glory before our eyes. This this is why we must, as local churches, never stop preaching the gospel. This is why we must not stop looking at the cross where his blood was spilt for us because it's there that we see the seriousness of our problem and the glory and beauty of his solution. And so may God Ogletown Baptist, by his great grace, may God, by the power of his spirit, open our eyes to see the greatness of his holiness and also the length and height and depth of his love in and through his son, Jesus. May we walk in the goodness and joy of his holiness and mercy today and every day that follows. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a holy, holy God. Thank you that we cannot, we must not just walk glibly into your presence, but we must feel the weight of your holiness, but then also have the glorious privilege of looking to your son who died in our place and who has now, by the power of your spirit, clothed us in his own righteousness so that we might enter boldly. Father, may Jesus become more and more beautiful to us. May we consider today and rejoice in the fact that you don't acquiesce, that you don't uh, come begrudgingly, but you are eager to dwell with your people. Lord, we pray all this in his name and for his glory. Amen.